Philippians chapter number one. Uh, Philippians chapter number one, and I'll just say one one more thing. Um, uh, I, I'm thankful to be here, um, but I, I'd say I'm 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 batting lead off. And you have a great preacher coming. You have a Dr. Jim Shetler. I talked to him on the phone about two hours ago. We both prayed together for these uh, meetings. Uh, I had him at, at our church um, uh, four or five months ago. Uh, or That was January, so uh, that's a long time ago. But uh, he and I prayed over the service. And, man, I'll tell you this. By, by the time Sunday comes and you experience uh, Dr. Shetler, you, you won't even remember me, all right? He's, he's a great man of God. God's used him in my life as well. I don't know why I'm here, but I, I'm glad to be here. Um, from what I understand, um, is this my microphone okay? We got me good? All right. So just one, one more quick little understanding, just so you know the church and your church leadership. So I guess the church leadership got together and they were trying to think about some speakers for the anniversary service and this whole weekend that we're, we're at right now. And so they, they got together and they said, well, let's try to get the smartest preacher that we can get for Thursday and Friday night. Um, unfortunately, he said no. <clears throat> so I was like, man, well, if we can't get the smartest preacher, let's try to get uh, the best looking preacher we can get for, for Thursday and Friday night. Unfortunately, he too said no. Um, and so they said, well, man, we can't get that. Let's try to get the funniest preacher we can get for Thursday and Friday. And I'm, tar- I'm sorry, church, unfortunately, he, he also said no. And finally, the leadership uh, of the church got around to asking me to come. And I had to say yes, I'd already said no three times. <laughs> All right. It sure is good to be here with, with God's... God's people, what a great thing to be part of a church and the family of God and to have the fellowship. I, sent, I just sense a great spirit here. You don't ever want to lose that. No matter how, how big or how small this church uh, becomes, you'd never want to lose the spirit of this church. It's more important than anything else. Um, I know you have a great pastor, you have a great staff, you have a great uh, future ahead of you. Philippians chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse number 19, reading through verse number 26. And then uh, with the help of some pictures tonight uh, in the introduction of the message, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get going. Uh, but I just want to tell you there'll be some uh, pictures on the screen that correspond to a story I'll begin with in, in the message. Let's read the scriptures. This is where the power of God is for us. Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. The Bible says, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not, or I don't know yet. For I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Well, I'd like to preach a message to you tonight uh, entitled, Living a Life Worth Living. A Life Worth Living. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for 
uh, your, the people of God here tonight. Thank you that we can even be called your people. Thank you for the book uh, that is before us, the Word of God. Thank you for the opportunity to open it, to consider it, uh, to preach it, understand it, and have it applied to our lives. And I pray, Father, uh, so much uh, preparation has gone into uh, to this weekend, this whole uh, uh, four or five days for, for this, this dear church and its wonderful legacy and its wonderful future ahead. And Lord, um, we, we, we come to, a, to this service tonight hungry, anticipating you to do something that, that is fresh, uh, and we need the Holy Spirit to work. And so we, we turn our lives over to you, Father. We surrender our lives to you and pray that you would have first place. You would have the preeminence in our lives right now. Help me to be um, a clear communicator of God's word uh, to this audience uh, as we are, are just new. We're, inter- we're meeting each other tonight. I pray that there'll be uh, a, a bond found in Jesus Christ and uh, just a, a shared love of scripture tonight. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. When I was in uh, high school, I was part of a reader's theater drama type of production uh, on the story of the life of John and Betty Stamm. Now, the, the story is a remarkable picture uh, of, of God's goodness and God's grace in a difficult time. It's a remarkable story, and John and Betty Stamm is, is a story that I would encourage you to find and, and to read further on your own. But in 1934, John and Betty Stamm were new missionaries, uh, with the China Inland Mission, along with their three-month-old daughter, Helen. Well, um, civil war uh, erupted uh, in, in, in uh, their area, and uh, the Communist Party began looting and shooting in the small town where they lived. The Stam's own home was invaded, and all three of them, uh, John and Betty and Helen, were eventually taken to a local prison where prisoners, criminals, were in that prison. They were kicked out. They were booted out of that prison to make room for Christians and missionaries like John and Betty Stamm. People were being killed all around. You can imagine the scene was something like a, like a, a violent movie. And so the Stams knew. The Stams just had this, this sense of the Lord that their life was not going to last very much longer, that they would certainly be killed and not allowed to live much longer. So John fired off and wrote off a a, a very hasty letter to the China Inland Mission explaining how they'd been captured, how they'd been caught, and he ended his note with with some words that we just read in Scripture, "May, may Christ be glorified whether by life or by death. The next day, as they were, were leaving to, to go somewhere else, he, John handed the letter to the, the neighborhood, the, the city postmaster, the, uh, the, the mailman, who happened to be a believer. And as he, as he got that note, that, that postman asked John where he was going. John Stam said, uh, I, I'm not sure where these soldiers are going, but Betty and I are going to heaven. That day, after a forced march of 20 of 12 miles, they arrived at a, at a small, uh, in a small town in, in another village, and they went to a, a home where they would spend the night. Betty was allowed to tend to their little girl, but she did more than that. She, she hurriedly fed her baby. Uh, she uh, hugged her goodbye. She wrapped her in warm clothes, and she put extra diapers and extra change of clothes inside a sleeping bag and put in there the only money she had left, which was $10. The next morning... That young couple was led out to the town square, and their hands were tightly bound, and no one seemed to notice that they didn't have the baby with them. 
both uh, John and Betty, as their hands were bound, they were forced to kneel on the ground. They were stripped of their outer clothing, which was common treatment for uh, a, a criminal back then. The, the commanding officer had ordered them to kneel. A soldier pulled out his sword, and it flashed through the air, and it came down and severed John's head with one quick blow. Betty uh, slumped over uh, her husband's body and tried to mutter out a prayer, but just then the same sword that killed her husband fell, rose and fell again, ending her life. Their baby, Helen, was found two days later. This is an actual picture that made the news. Her muffled cries in that abandoned house had aroused curiosity from the neighbors nearby. She was eventually delivered to her grandparents, also serving as missionaries in China. And then eventually to her aunt in the United States, where Helen uh, Stam lived a pretty private life until she died in 2014. When John and Betty died, John was 27 and Betty was 28. But, but church, their deaths would impact and inspire the entire Christian community, the entire evangelical world in the West. In fact, for instance, 700 students at Moody Bible Institute and 200 students at nearby Wheaton College back in the 1930s here uh, immediately dedicated themselves to full-time Christian service no matter the cost. On their tombstones, on the tombstones of John and Betty Stam that you can see pictured, were lines that were written by another martyr named Paul. On John's tombstone, John Cornelius Stam, it said that Christ may be glorified whether by life or by death. And the other one says, Elizabeth Scott Stam, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So with that story as our background and with this Bible text before us, I'd like to preach a message about living a life like that living a life that's worth living. So I have three points. Number one is this. If you're going to live a life worth living, this life is going to be a life that relies on prayer and the power of the Spirit. Point number one, this life relies on prayer and the power of the Spirit. Get this from verse 19, where, where Paul gets into this subject and gets into really the meat of, of, the, of, of the first chapter. You see, I've... Uh, uh, you see there in verse 19, it says, for I know that, what's the next word? For I know that, for I know that this, it's the word this. And so y'all, y'all, do we need to start over? Is that okay? You got this part? All right. Just asked you to say one word. That's too much for you already? Okay. <laughs> this, for I know that this. Now, the, the, so the, the joy of, of preaching expository messages and understanding, we got to figure out what exactly is the this that Paul's talking about. What is the context? When Paul says, I know that this shall turn into something, I know that this will turn into my deliverance, it'd be helpful if we knew what that was. Well, I'll tell you what it was. If you could read uh, in your own time verses 12 through 18, you'll see that Paul is referring with the word this in verse 19 to some circumstances that had happened to him that he described in verses 12 through 18. And what he says there is because of Paul's chains, because of the chains he had bound up in prison, he's writing from prison in the book of Philippians, because of Paul's chains, Christ was known. That's verse 13. Because of Paul's critics... 
Christ was being preached. That's verse 18. And so in general, because of Paul's crisis that he was going through, these circumstances, the, the this of verse 19, he said, because of all these things, Christ is magnified. So, so get this, church, the key to, to, to someone like Paul, the key to his joy and the key to his impact that he had uh, in his life while he was alive was he was completely focused on Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, you, you could jail Paul and you could beat Paul and you could threaten Paul and you could abandon Paul and you could even kill Paul. But what you could not get Paul to do was to get his focus off of his life's mission to get his focus off of Jesus Christ. That was his prize. That was his savior. You could not get him to wait to move uh, away from his focus. I think about these difficulties that Paul goes through compared to some difficulties that we go through. You see, it's very easy. It, 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 it's very easy to find difficulties in our lives. It's very easy to find difficulties in our opportunities. We need to learn from Paul. And we need to see how to find opportunities in our difficulties. You see the difference? You need to find opportunities. I don't, I'm not sure what happened to Zach today, but the devil was after him. All right? He needs to find opportunities in those difficulties. We, and we, and I'm just teasing you, of course, because I know him and I earned the right to tease him. All right? Because I'm an old man. And, uh, but I, we understand how we, we just, sometimes you just have a bad day. You just, you just, you're just in a bad mood. You're just, you're just like in a, in a funk, I call it. You just don't feel like doing anything, being nice to anybody. And we just feel like, man, nothing, but it feels like I'm going uphill. All these trials, all these things. And then we read something like this from a man in prison who's later going to say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And we're like, maybe I, maybe I need a perspective change. Maybe I need to alter the way I look at this. Because, my friends, if, if your circumstances, like Paul, if your circumstances find you with Christ, then you can find Christ in your circumstances. You can find Christ there. And so, so this is really just getting into the context of what, what, why he has this perspective because Paul is describing, he's setting forth what has happened to him and why those things were necessary to give him the perspective that it gave him. I'm 45 years old. I've been in ministry about 23 years, and, and I've seen a lot of things. And I, I, I'm able now, like many of you who are in about that age and around that season of life, you and I should be able to be mature enough to the point we can look back on our life, we can say, I can see now that the things that have happened to me in the past and the things that are happening to me now, they're all creating in me a perspective of what my life is supposed to be, what my life is supposed to do, the impact that my life could have on those around me. And Paul is setting forth all these things, that it's changing his perspective. And he also says, he also knows, I can't do this alone. I need you to pray for me. He, Paul knew in order for him to have a bold life and a Christ-honoring life and, and, and one that in a life that would not be ashamed when it stood before Jesus Christ, that he needed God's people praying for him. What a great thing to be a part of a church and have a, 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 probably a Wednesday prayer meeting or a prayer bulletin that goes out and have the opportunity to pray for others and pray for people. Paul knew that the prayers of God's people could lead to his deliverance. He says, I know that this will turn to my salvation. Stop. Time out. Look up this way. What does he mean by salvation? What does he mean by deliverance? He says, if you pray for me, it'll help me be delivered. Well, I'll tell you what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean he's going to be delivered for salvation because that's not how you get salvation. 
you don't get salvation by people praying for you. You get salvation because you called upon the name of the Lord yourself to save you. And if you need to know about that, we can talk to you about that after the service at any point. We would love to introduce you to the Savior. But he's not talking about salvation like we talk about salvation, they going to heaven. He's also not talking about being delivered. You stay with me. This is important. He's also not talking about being delivered out of jail or delivered from death or delivered to the next city. He's talking about being delivered unto a life that's worth living. I know that this that's happening to me, if you'll pray for me with the Spirit's help, this is all going to be used to make me be a person that God can use. And that what, what, a, what a mature perspective. And so in reality, Paul is asking people to pray for him that his life would count for God. That his life would count for God. He did not want to end up ashamed. He, did, he wanted to be a finish line Christian. He wanted, to, he wanted to go across the finish line with a Christ-exalting life. That's why it's so important that we pray for each other in this church. That's why it's so important you pray for your kids. You pray for your kids. I'm just going to tell you something. I don't pray for your kids. I pray for my kids. Do you pray for your kids? If you're not praying for your kids, and I know you probably got some grandkids too, if you don't pray for your kids, uh, probably no one's praying for your kids. Are you praying for your kids? I, and I mean, let me get you to go next level and say, uh, Lord, help my kids have a good day. Be a good friend. Uh, enjoy their lunch. Uh, knock your hurt at P.E. Let's go, Lord, help my kids to live a life that counts for God. Help my, help my kids to live a life that's unashamed before Christ today at school or as they grow up and as they make decisions, they, they'll, they'll be surrendered. Help, help my kids to live a life that counts for God. Help them to be a courageous Christian in this anti-God, Bible-mocking, Jesus-hating culture. But see, this isn't games, folks. We, the Bible says in Ephesians 2.10, we are created to be his workmanship. The Christian life's not a playground, it's a battleground. And we are not created to be his playmanship. We're created to be his workmanship. I want my life to count for God. I want the lives of my children, Sophia, Landon, and Olivia, and even my dog, Fondue, to count for God. He's not a Christian yet. You pray for him. That's why it's important we pray for our pastors, our deacons, our Sunday school teachers, our youth workers, Everybody that serves any capacity. It's critical to not being ashamed. It's critical to going the distance. It's critical to staying faithful. If we have people praying for us, the prayers of others can bring great uh, uh, power and great transformation and bring great spiritual strength in difficult times. And, of course, he says here in verse 19, and we'll, we'll move on to point number two, but just to notice that it's also the, it's not just the, the supplication of the saints in verse 19. It's the supply of the Spirit. I sure do like when the Bible alliterates for me. It makes it a lot easier, right, as a preacher. The supply of the Spirit. I like that. I'll tell you this. If the Apostle Paul said, I can't make it, I can't count for God unless you pray for me, unless I'm infused with the Spirit, I got news for you. None of us have any hope of making it either. This the Apostle Paul is the greatest Christian that ever lived. Highly respectable man in the faith. This is a man that has the, the, the power of God and trans, a great transformation in his life. If the Apostle Paul says, I can't live this kind of life until you pray for me and until the Holy Spirit fills me and supplies the strength that I need, then I'm telling you something, we are in the same position. A joyful, faithful 
Christ-exalting, non-ashamed life requires the power of God's Spirit. And a life worth living requires that continual connection to the Holy Spirit. Let's move on. Number two. Number one is this, that a life like this, a life worth living, this life relies on prayer. It relies on the power of the Spirit. Number two, this life requires a passion for the Savior. This life requires a passion for the Savior. Listen to the, listen to the passion of Paul's heart here in verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope. The, the words, church, listen, the words earnest expectation describe a deep and abiding longing of his heart. It's like, picture, picture that runner. Paul always uses this analogy of running and a lot of his spiritual truths. But picture that runner stretching out, leaning forward all across the, the, the finish ribbon and stretching, pressing toward them. That's what he's saying here. My earnest stretching, my, the passion of my life is that I, I, I will live a life that, that, that's not a shame, one that takes a stand. That I don't want to be a disappointment to God. I don't want, I don't want the, the salvation that landed on my life to be wasted. His simple goal was to honor the Savior. He, he wanted anything, and it says there in verse number 20, for Christ to be magnified by his life. That's such an interesting phrase. Magnified. How could your life, how could my life possibly magnify God? How could your life and my life possibly magnify Jesus Christ? Well, I was helped by a couple of um, pieces of scientific equipment. See, think about the the heavens, the the outer space. The stars are are, are much bigger than a telescope, yet the telescope magnifies them, and, and it brings them closer. You can see them clearly. It takes something far away and helps you see it very clearly. Well, let's, let, let's apply this, because preaching's no good if it ain't practical, okay? See, your life, how many of you are a believer? You're a believer, you're a child of God. Good, praise the Lord. If you're a believer, then your life is a telescope. Your life is a telescope that uh, brings Jesus Christ close to people. The average person in this world, the average person in Clarksville, even though we live right here in the Bible Belt, and I do too. The average person, to the average person in Clarksville, Jesus Christ is just a blurry figure that lived 2,000 years ago and has no relevance and makes no difference to them whatsoever. But when that lost person sees your life and sees my life and sees the way we go through a trial the way we go through a, a, an ordeal, the way that just the way that we go through our lives, just the normal, every, they see us go through a crisis and they see how we respond, that we keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ. They see Jesus Christ magnified and brought a lot closer to where they live. And they, God can use that. God can do something through you. By you just living your life with your eyes on Jesus Christ. Just living a life that will count for God. Are you close to Jesus? Are you close to Christ? And then the other, the other thing I thought about how a telescope brings distant things closer, but a microscope makes tiny things look big. 
You see, to the unbeliever, Jesus is not very big. The average perspective of Jesus Christ in America today is, uh, he, he's not important to me. Jesus Christ just gets in the way. I have so many other things, but more important, other people and other things and other commitments and other priorities are, are, are far more important than Jesus Christ. But when the unbeliever sees you as a Christian, as a believer, as a true believer, go through a crisis, go through a trial, just live your life, they should be able to look at you and say, Jesus Christ is big to that person. Jesus Christ is a big part of that person's life. And I, I want to know more. And that curiosity can turn to conviction and turn to confession and turn to Christianity. You see, the, unbel- the, the, the believer's life is a lens that makes a little Christ look very big and a far-off Christ look very close. So now we come to, to really what is this, one of the most profound verses in the entire New Testament. Verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, in, um, it, it, it's short, but it's deep, all right? Kind of like Zach. It's short, but it's deep. It's 12 words, I believe, in English, but it's only nine in Greek. The, the sentence in Greek uh, are we really doing Greek on a Thursday night? Come on, bring a new guy in next time. All right. In the Greek, there's, there's no verbs. There's, there's no verbs in the Greek. It, you can, it, so if you translate this in the original language very, very woodenly, okay, very rough, it goes to live, Christ. To die, gain. That's it. It's a really good motto for our lives. Paul says, my personal goal is to magnify Jesus Christ. So I can only do that if I have God's people praying for me and if I'm living a life that is dependent upon the Spirit. But my earnest hope and my passionate expectation, the deep desire, abiding desire of my life is that I would reach this objective. And so what Paul is saying is, as I just seek to unpack this verse for a little bit longer, is that, that my life has been so lived for Jesus Christ that at this very moment in time, it doesn't matter to me whether I live or whether I die. It doesn't matter to me. If I live, he says, if I live, I'll continue to live for Jesus. But if I die, I'll go be with Jesus Christ. In other words, the focus of my life has been so devoted to Jesus Christ, it does not matter to me whether I live right now or whether I die right here, right now in prison. This is an amazing statement to be able to make. I don't know if there's many of us here tonight that could make this statement. Paul says, if I live today or if I die today, it makes no difference in my commitment to Jesus Christ. Paul, listen, Paul had no loose ends to tie up in his life. Do you have any loose ends? You know, people that you're just not ready to forgive yet. That's such a terrible phrase. I've encountered that in ministry a number of times, trying to restore relationships, trying to get people to get along. And I heard, I hear someone say, I'm just not ready to forgive them yet. That is, um, that's called narcissism. Uh, that is called something that sounds very pious, but it's an uh, excuse. I'm just not ready to forgive them yet. I hope you realize that Nothing anyone's ever done to you is worse than what you've done to God. 
and God forgave you. Paul had no loose ends to tie up. People that remain unforgiven, unrestored in your life, people you are holding out on witnessing to, people you're holding out on discipling or uh, speaking to in, into their life for the Lord. Paul had no loose ends. Commentator William Barclay concluded from this text, this verse, verse 21, which is so common. He said it, about Paul, if Christ were taken out of his life, there'd be nothing left. I can't help but wonder if Jesus Christ was taken out of my life or taken out of your life would anything look different? Would anything feel like it's missing if Jesus Christ were taken out? Would anything change? What I'm saying is this. Man, listen to me. You're faithfully providing for and working hard and you're living for your family. But my question is this. Does your family see Christ in you? Does your family see Christ magnified in you? And isn't that the most important goal of our lives? You're deeply invested in a career. We spend most of our waking hours at work. You're deeply invested in where you work, but is that the arena where Christ is seen in your life the most? And isn't that the goal of our lives? Isn't that the most important thing? Maybe you're set set off and set back right now because of some trial, because of a a health issue or a financial crisis, or you're just just waiting for some pieces of a certain situation to fall into place, and and, and you'll feel a little better. But you're going through all these things, but is, is Christ right now apparently to all your source of strength, your source of joy, your source of peace? And isn't that what life is all about? Isn't isn't that the most important thing, that Christ be magnified? Brought close, focused in on, isn't that the most important thing? Would anything about your family, about your career, about your trial, about whatever you're going through, about your life, would anything about that change if Christ were taken out? Someone else put it this way, another way to say this verse, that dying as a faithful servant of God is a better option than living for oneself. So my my question is... is your life right now being lived in such a way that, that, that you're, you could die right now and you're ready to go see the Lord? I don't know about you uh, as a pastor, but sometimes people can, be very, people can be hypothetically pious. So I hear things like this because I'm a pastor, and for some reason people like to unload their pious platitudes when a pastor is around. And, and so sometimes I'll hear people say things like this. I tell you what, I'm just ready to go to heaven. I'm just ready to go be with Jesus. I'm just ready to go see the Lord. I'm just tired of this old, sick, and sinful, wicked world. I'm just ready to go see the Lord. And sometimes I honestly want to look at them and say, why? Are you sure? Are you ready for that? Like I want to tell them, have you even yet begun to live for the Lord? You want to die for the Lord? Don't tell me you want to die for the Lord if you haven't yet begun to live for the Lord. This doesn't make any sense to me. You're still alive. People say these pious things all the time. People get 
uh, so apathetic and so lazy and so indifferent and so lackadaisical when it comes to the Christian life. Uh, it's, it's, we have such a hard time anymore in, this, in the Christian life. People are just complaining. Everything's an issue. People are so weak-willed and they're so, they're so easily offended. And I'm just ready to go be with Jesus. You haven't even done... What, have you worked for the Lord? Um, I, don't, I think it's a result of the pandemic. And then it just lingers on. I now have people that miss church for nothing. For nothing. Um, I, I understand. People get sick. I, I hate it when you go out of town and you know, people miss on a Sunday, but go out, you're going to go out of town. Go have a weekend. Go see the kids. Go to the lake. Go to the beach. Have a vacation. That's fine. But now, I'm, t- I'm just, can I, I can't vent to my church. I'm going to vent to you. Um, <laughs> I drove all this way. No. Um, I now get texts. Like, hey, Sunday, do you do the Sunday thing where you text people that you missed them on Sunday? You should do that. You're a good pastor. Um, and, no. So, miss you on Sunday. And we get a text back that says, yeah, we were out in the sun a lot yesterday. And I'm, you know what I'm supposed to do, what I'm supposed to say as a pastor is, bless the Lord, oh my soul, let the good Lord love you. Um, and, and what I want to say is, Rudy Toot Toot, I was out in the sun, like, sister, I have a lawn also. <laughs> and the leaves fall in my yard, the leaves fall in the yard of the just people, just like the unjust people. <laughs> and I, yeah, I, was, I, happened, I happened to go outside yesterday. Now they just, but you used to be, oh, yeah, we weren't church. Yeah, yeah, I had an a, a appendix attack. Okay, that's fair. Fair enough. I get it, <laughs> you know, except if you go back 50 years ago, people were like giving birth to kids on Saturday and coming to church and dedicating them on Sunday morning. <laughs> Crazy stuff. Now it's like we need, we need six months. I, I, I just can't wait to go to heaven and be with Jesus. You're wasting all this time. Now, people, I'm getting texts. People are missing church for nothing. Nothing. Because a dog, cat, we have these dogs. I love pets, too, but, I mean, you yeah, okay, I got I to gotta move on. You're not, you're just. <laughs> I'm saying it in, in all seriousness. Frankly, some people live their entire lives dedicated to the world and dedicated to themselves, and then they say something like, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm like, are you serious? Are you for real? Have, have, you, have you done it? What, what have you done for Christ? What in your life could someone point and say, you, that counts for something, that counts for eternity. Are, do, do you share your, your faith? Do you, do you witness? Is Jesus on your lips? Do you men, I, I, I'm sorry, we have a famine of men. We have a famine of Christian men in the church and in this world today. Do you men lead your family spiritually? They need you to do that before you go to heaven. Do you challenge people to grow in the Lord? Are people impacted by your testimony? Do people see Jesus in you? Do you pray? Do you pray? I'm, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for uh, that magical recipe of how I'm supposed. To, you know, the best way to learn how to pray is to pray. 
Do you give? Do you serve? Do, do you do anything for anybody else ever? Do you, do you serve anybody outside of your own little world? Can you talk about anybody else but yourself? Is everything about, do, do you ever take a stand for the truth? Do you ever speak up for, for the Lord? Does your life enhance the word of God and the work of Jesus Christ? Is there any evidence that, that your life has been yielded completely and surrendered over to the Lord? You see, again, back to, back to what I hear people say. Is some people talk about going to heaven without even mentioning Christ. That's not what Paul envisions. He, he can't wait to go to heaven to see his Savior because he's lived his life on this earth for his Savior. He, he, he so loved living for him he, while he was on earth, he can't wait to see him when he dies. This life, this life has to have passion for the Savior. All right, I need to wrap up so that you come back tomorrow night. Uh, number three, but let's, 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 end, let's end with intention here, okay? Number three, this life, this life worth living, this life we know we all should have, this life it re- revolves, this life revolves around the production of spiritual fruit. Verses 22 through 26, Paul's in a dilemma. He's torn between two options. He says, I have this desire to go to heaven, man, I can't wait to see Jesus. I can't wait to see my Savior. I can't wait to be there. And, and, and so he can't wait to go there, but, but he, he says, I also realize if I stay here, I could really continue to pour into your life. I could really make a difference for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I could really, I could really propel some gospel efforts. And there's, 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 there's needs of this church here at Philippi and other churches that Paul started. And he says, I, ha- I have my own personal desire to just get, be done with it and go see my Savior. But, but, but nonetheless, I need to stay here because people need my influence. Most people don't think like this. Most, most people put their own comfort, their own will, their own agenda ahead of anybody else, not Paul. Most people say, they do not say, I, I'm just going to stay here at this church uh, and serve others. Most people say, I think I'm leaving this church because no one here is serving me. Ah, I'm needed here. I'm needed in, in, in my sphere of influence, in my, my area, my arena of life. I'm needed to make a difference. And so even though Paul knew, and we all know this, that being with Jesus for all eternity in his presence is a lot better, and we all, amen, are looking forward to that, he was willing to live out the rest of the days that God gave him on earth for the church. That's why Paul wanted to stay. That's why Paul wanted to live longer, is to do more for Jesus. And I'm telling you, I I believe I'm just now understanding what that means as a 45-year-old. Like, how many times do we just kind of think, and there's proof of this in our lives, we just think, I want to live longer to be happier. I want to live longer to make more money. I want to live longer and make that promotion. I want to live longer and see kids and grandkids. And I want to live longer and, and just be recognized. I want to have fame and success and riches and all the... Uh, not Paul. Says, I, I, want, I want to live longer so I can serve Jesus more. That's incredible, folks. Yet you and me, we're showing what's important to us by the life that we live. Do you see the power of this perspective? I'm almost done. Do you see the power of this? Do you see the power of Paul's perspective? 
You can't lose. You can't lose. Uh, guards. Here's, here's the guards in prison, all right? We're going to kill you, Paul. He's like, fantastic. Uh, dying is gain. Bring it on. Guards. On second thought, we're going to let you live. It's like, great. Living means more time to see fruit for Jesus. Guards are confused. We're going to make you suffer. He says, it would fill me with joy to suffer for the name of my Savior. I mean, kill me, I'll be with Jesus. Let me live, I'll live for Christ. Make me suffer, I'll reflect Jesus Christ. I'll get rewarded one day in heaven. Paul's perspective was a win-win. Living, I win. Dying, I win. Here's a picture on the screen. The logo of a missionary organization from over a hundred years ago. It's a picture, I know it's hard to see, but it's a picture in the foreground of an ox with a plow on the ground next to him. And the other side behind that ox and that plow is an altar (laughs) where a sacrifice is burning. And you see that, the American Baptist Foreign Mission Society from 1814, you see that, that banner above the smoke? What's it say? Ready for either. The ox and the plow, of course, symbolize get busy for Christ. Don't tell me there's this major love for Christ if there's no labor for it. Don't, don't, don't say you want to live for Christ if there's no proof in the pudding. Plow the ground. Work your area. Live for Christ. One day you're going to, be, you're going to die. That altar, of course, symbolizes a sacrifice. Symbolizes the end of our days. Can, can you imagine having that embroidered onto your missionary society shirt while you ride a boat to Thailand for three months? Ready for either. Fast forward to 2023 and look at the apathy we have now. So Philippians 1.21 can become a very valuable test for our lives. For me to live is what? For me to live is blank. What, what goes in the blank? And to die is blank. Sometimes we could phrase it this way. People have said, for me to live is money, and to die is to leave it all behind. For me to live is fame, and to die is to be forgotten. For me to live is power, and to die is to lose it all. This is about the mission statement of your life. It's personal for me. It's practical to live. It's powerful. It's Christ. It's about Christ. Let me give you what Paul Harvey used to call the rest of the story. As a young woman of 18 years old, just 10 years before Betty Stam would be martyred, in China. She wrote a prayer, a poem really, that would later be published throughout the Western world, and here's what that poem says. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all.
utterly to thee to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt and send me where thou wilt. Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. Church, listen, that poem would be copied a few years later by a 12-year-old girl into the flyleaf of her Bible. A 12-year-old girl the world would one day know as Elizabeth Elliot. The fruit we talked about, living a life that produces fruit for Christ, the fruit continues to grow, continued to grow and develop from John and Betty Stam. Elizabeth's husband, Jim Elliott, you know the story, would become one more martyr in the story of the church. Jim Elliott was the one that wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, which I believe is just another way of saying with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you don't have this as your meaning in life, if this isn't your purpose in life, you don't have this outlook on death, You're not ready to live for the Lord. Grace is available to you in the person of Jesus Christ. But you can have this as the driving force of your life. Don't you want to live a life worth living, a life that matters? I want to get the end of my time and realize that I've just wasted it all. It's too late now. I want, to, I want my life to count. I want to, I want to see Jesus Christ unashamed. I want to cross that finish line faithful, having fought well, having run my course. So I encourage you tonight as we just really get, get the ball rolling with these several days of church anniversary celebration and, re, and fall revival. I'm so excited to be a part of it. Let's surrender our lives to the Lord again. Say, God, my eyes have been getting on myself. My eyes are on my circumstances, on my problems, and I need to turn my life back over to you and say, for me to live is Christ. Take my life. Use it however you want. I give you full control. I accept your will for my life. Show me, send me, fill me, whatever the cost, now and forever. Let's pray. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. I invite you to stand to your feet. It's a very... Um, important and simple invitation tonight and I'll just introduce it and I'll just get it started and then I'll invite your pastor to close the service. I would ask you to come tonight if you would like your life to count for Jesus Christ. We have moms and dads here. We have husbands and wives. We have children. We have grandchildren. Grab each other. Grab a hand. Go pray with your kids. We want men to take the leadership. We want our family to count for Christ. We want to make a difference in this church. We want to make a difference in our area, in our neighborhood. I want my life to count for Christ. The piano is going to play. You come right now. Uh, if you want your life to count for Christ, and you echo these words of Paul, Lord, give me a passion for you. Help my life to produce something that counts, that is greater than me. I don't want to waste it. Fill me with your spirit on a Thursday night. Fill me with power to live for you tomorrow.